the art of writing letters. Not, it doesn't happen so much anymore. In this digital age, we send a quick text. It's just a few random letters. BRB, be right back. A little heart for I love you. Or we send an email, but it doesn't have the same thing, that same feeling attached to it when you go out to the mailbox and you open it up and inside is a letter from a good friend. Maybe it's a thank you note. Maybe it's just a letter sharing how they're doing. Encouragement, appreciation. Those are the things that letters do for us. And that's what Paul did. Paul wrote letters. Paul wrote letters to his churches that he planted to encourage them, to, to remind them of who they were, where they came from. He encouraged them to persevere. Keep going, you can do this. And the church that he wrote to was Ephesus. That's what we're going to be focusing the next several weeks on, is his letter to the Ephesians. Now Ephesus was located in what is modern-day Turkey today. And Ephesus was the fifth largest city in the Roman Empire at the time that Paul was writing. But it was known most as an idol-worshipping city. In Ephesus, there was a temple. It was called the Temple of Artemis, or as some people call it, the Temple of Diana. This temple was so massive, it was four times the size of the Parthenon. Four times the size. But this goddess, Diana, she was a fertility goddess. And so you can only imagine, based on that knowledge, well, maybe I don't want you to imagine right now, but what their worship entailed in this temple, it was all about sex. That's what Ephesus was, it wasn't just pagan, it was pagan revolved around this fertility goddess. And this was a hotbed of travel. People stopped here because of its location. People were constantly coming in and out of this city. And Paul spent about three years in Ephesus building a church there. You can read about it in the book of Acts in chapter 19. There's several stories about Paul's experience in Ephesus. And as he was there, the gospel was spreading like wildfire. It was growing, it was growing, it was catching. People were just soaking it up. I want to know more, I want to know more. But a man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, he started to gather tradesmen around. And he said, wait a minute, something's not right here. He started an uproar in the city. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message that Paul was bringing to this city, was taking away their business. It was taking away their livelihood. See, their business was making small shrines of the temple of Diana for people to take with them. 
And they would use them as these idols to worship. The only way I can think of it in, in, in our human terms is when people pass through Florida. Any place you go in Florida, any rest stop, you can buy some with Mickey Mouse. Or you can buy something with a palm tree. Or a shell, pink flamingos. Same idea. As people were traveling through this city, they were buying these trinkets. And then they would take these trinkets and they would bring them home and they would be worshiping these trinkets. And suddenly, with the gospel of Jesus Christ spreading through the city, nobody was buying those trinkets. And so the riots started. All of these people, a little bit here, oh, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? And you know how gossip can spread like wildfire. And so all these people, they just started hearing little bits here and little bits there, and they storm into the temple. And a riot starts. Now, hear how it's described by Luke in the 19th chapter of Acts. Inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing, some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. You see, the riot was starting because of the mere mention of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus was causing a riot. See, the believers weren't breaking any laws. They were simply living differently. Sounds kind of familiar to what we're living in today. Kind of a modern day Ephesus in some ways. And this is the backdrop for Paul's letter. He knows where they came from. He spent three years with these people. And he knows the struggle. He knows the temptations that are surrounding them. And he's writing them to say... You're no longer those idol-worshiping people. You're no longer tied to the foolish philosophies that the people in the world keep telling you. And don't forget, he's writing from prison. As we start this reading, remember, he's in prison, and he's writing these words. Let's start reading in the first chapter of Ephesians, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one whom he loves. Paul gives us three reasons to praise the Father in just these first six verses. Verse 3 says, Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What are the heavenly realms? It's used five different times in this letter. 
Ephesians 1.20. He exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 2.6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And God, uh, Ephesians 3.10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The heavenly realms is where God dwells. The heavenly realms refers to the spiritual activity that's taking place around us. See, we forget we're not just flesh and blood. We're spiritual beings. We tend to focus on the here and now, but it's not our home. We focus on what we can see, and we forget that the things we can't see are the things that are most important. When Paul says in the heavenly realms, he's reminding us of our home with the Father through Jesus Christ. Bear with me a minute. I'm going to do some mental gymnastics here. See, God isn't constrained by time the way we are. See, when we accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that's when God sees us in Christ. See, he sees us in the heavenly realms in Christ. We may be here physically on earth, but he sees us with Christ. Hard to wrap our head around. And because he sees us in Christ, he blesses us with every spiritual blessing. Because our God is a God of blessings. He's overflowing with blessings for us. We often say that we're blessed. We look at our family. We look at our friends, our health, and our job and say, Lord, I am blessed. And those are all good things. But what Paul's talking about is not the stuff that we see, but the grand spiritual blessings that we can't see. But they are so abundant through Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ we receive from our Father, it comes with the same message. But wait, there's more. Our Father says, in Christ I forgive you. I forgive your sins. But wait, there's more. I justify you in the righteousness of Christ. But wait, there's still more. I adopt you into my family. But wait, there's more. I prepare a place for you in heaven. But wait, there's more. I give you grace upon grace. But wait, there's more. I uphold you with my right hand. But wait, there's more. And Paul continues his praise of God. He's just on and on and on. It's like this wave that just keeps rolling in of praise for God because of all that he does for us. In verse 4, Paul continues. He says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us before the creation of the world. God looked out over all of humankind. 
He knows every weakness. He knows every strength. He knows every act of goodness. And he knows every act of sinfulness. But he chose us anyway. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he chose us before he created the world. Before creating anything, you were a thought in the heavenly realms. He chose you and you and you. He could see ahead to humanity's sin. He knew that humankind was going to turn away from him and sin. He knew the pain it would cause him to have us turn away. He knew the even greater pain that would be required of him to bring us back into a right relationship. He knew before he created that Jesus would have to die. Our chosenness has nothing to do with us, but everything to do with God. There's a picture out in the narthex on the wall. It's just a little snapshot of the Michelangelo creation of Adam, about God's hand coming to touch Adam's. And Adam's hand is is just kind of limping, kind of just out there. And God's hand is the one that's strong and sturdy and pointing. You, I choose you. That's what it, we have nothing in ourselves. We come limping. And God says, I choose you. So why did he bother to create us? Why did he bother to choose us? Because of his love for us. He looked through time. He saw the pain. And he loved us enough to create us and to choose us anyway. That's why our response to God is so important. Our worship and our praise of God is our response to his great love for us. Our hearts should bow in wonder to his mercy and his grace. The second part of that verse says that he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. In Christ, we are holy. In Christ, we are blameless. Because God calls us to be holy and blameless. And as this characteristic becomes a part of us, as we strive to become more and more like Christ, And as we express this holiness through acts of love to those around us, people are impacted. When we act in love towards others, that's when God is worshipped. That's when God is glorified. But wait, there's more. Verse 5 says, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Sometimes that word predestined trips us up. You go to say that in some Christian circles, and it could cause quite a stirring debate. Because if we're predestined, then that means we have no free will. But I thought we had free will. But if we have free will, then how can we be predestined for adoption? I don't know. Scripture actually teaches both. We're predestined and we have free will. We can't explain it. 
We aren't meant to explain it. We aren't meant to understand it. See, these truths can coexist in God because he's God. It's his sovereign will. Throughout history, we see God choose. God acts within that choosing. He chose Abraham. Abraham responded, and God acted. God chose Moses. Moses responded, then God acted. See, we need to let God be God and look at this as a reason to praise him. Because if we can't understand it, that means he's bigger than we are. He's grander than we are. We don't need to understand it. We need to not focus on the predestined part of that statement because then we miss the whole message of that verse. For adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Through Christ, we are welcomed into God's family. He calls us sons and daughters. Today, we can determine paternity and identity through DNA tests. In biblical times, identity was born out of a person doing what their father did. If your father was a shepherd, you were a shepherd. And you do what shepherds do. That was your identity. Even Jesus was called the carpenter's son. He himself was a carpenter until he began his ministry. And then at his baptism, when God identifies Jesus as his son, this is my son, he was no longer a carpenter. He did what his heavenly father did. Whatever God willed him to do is what he did. He displayed the characteristics of his father in heaven. See, with this sonship comes responsibility. Responsibility to display the characteristics of our father. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, and the greatest one, love. See, that's what it means to be a part of God's family. If we want the people out there to come in here, we have to act like the family of God. We have to behave like our father. We have to behave like the sons and daughters of the king, displaying his characteristics in our day-to-day -day lives. I believe the people that make up the body of Christ at Sawgrass are a wonderful family. A family that's warm. A family that's welcoming. A place where you can take off your mask. A place where your burdens can be shared without judgment. A place where walls are torn down, not built up. It's a place of support. It's a family filled with encouragement. And that's what we need to take with us every day of the week. It's not just for Sundays. So the people that cross our paths can see the God that's worthy of our praise. They can see the God that loves them. I had an experience the other day. I had to buy a clicker, a gate remote for our subdivision because Jay's had broken. And so I emailed our, our management office and said, I need a new remote. What do I need to do to get a new remote? This was on Monday. And they said, okay, well, you just need to come to our office and write a check for money order, no cash, for $25 and we'll give you a new remote. I said, okay, thank you. What are your office hours? Oh, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Okay, thank you. And so I went there on Friday. 
I had hoped to get there earlier, but it just didn't happen, and so I showed up Friday. Drove all the way to the office. I got in there, found it, everything. I got there, and, and she said, excuse me, can I help you? I said, yes. I said, I'm here to buy a gate remote for my subdivision. Okay, what place do you live? So I told her, and she said, oh, we don't have any. And I said, oh. And there's a little voice in my head. I said, don't you go there. Don't you dare go there. Don't you dare go there. And I looked behind the woman, and behind her on the wall were the Ten Commandments. I said, oh, okay, Lord, I got the message. I got the message. And so I, I, had, I, really, I had to make that conscious, okay, Lord, I, I, I won't, I won't, I won't yell, I won't be snarky, I won't be sarcastic. I, I, but it wasn't so much, it was me saying, okay, Lord, I don't want to be that person. And then there was this switch that happened in me. There's this peace and this calmness that just came over me. And the woman behind the desk, she, she started, oh, well, let me see how I can help you. you know, she was really nervous. And she said, well, I need you to fill this form out. We need to order some for you. Okay, no problem. And she said, and we'll, we'll, we'll bring it to you, I guess, when we get them. And I said, you know, before I had my God moment, I would have said, yeah, you're darn right you're bringing them to me. I came all the way over here. <laughs> but God shook me up. I said, oh. And so I looked at her. I said, that's okay. I'll come back and pick them up. And she looked at me. And she said, oh, she goes, okay. She goes, I just don't want you to be mad at me. And then it hit me. I said, wow. I said, you have, I said, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not, she goes, but you're from Weston. She said, she said, sometimes those people are really mean to me. And I said, I'm not going to, I said, hey. I said, we're all just trying to get through this world together. You know, and I just kind of talked to her. She's, and she said, thank you. She said, thank you. And, but my point is that I didn't want to respond that way. I wanted to be angry. I wanted to be nasty because I drove all the way there. And they didn't tell me beforehand. They didn't have them. But God said, no, 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 no. That's not who you are. If you're my daughter, you better behave like it. I said, oh, okay, okay. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that message. And it made a difference. It made an impact on her. Because she felt, you know, she was, she was nervous. You could tell. And then she, oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're, you're welcome. Have a great weekend. That's what it's about. That's our identity. See, the verse ends with in accordance to his pleasure and his will. See, God enjoys having us as his children. His joy is greatest when we're living lives that are holy and blameless. His greatest joy is when we are identified as his children. When we behave in love. It brings him joy when we recognize who he is and we respond with praise. In these six short verses, Paul reminded us that God has blessed us. He's chosen us. And he's predestined us to be a part of his family. He is a great God.
He's indescribable. And he's so worthy of our praise. As we leave this place today, let's hold tight to our sonship. Let's hold tight to our identity in Christ. So as we leave this place, as we go out there in the world, Monday through Saturday, people can say, you're different. You don't behave like those other people. You're nice. Why are you being kind to me? Why are you being loving to me? Because I'm a daughter of the king, that's why. May we leave this place and, and really grab hold of what it means to be chosen by God. And praise him. Not just with our words, but in our actions. When we meet those people out there. That when we act in love, we're praising our father. And giving him the glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being with us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for adopting us into your family. We thank you for pursuing us, for chasing us, Father, because there is nothing in us that makes us worthy other than you, Father. You make us valuable. You make us worthy, Father. And as we leave this place, may we point the glory back to you. May we love the way you love. May we forgive the way you forgive. May we offer mercy and grace, Father, to those around us. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.